welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 55, The Changing of the Guard. Okay, so I went a little overboard introducing Japan, going back way farther and in more detail than most any other place I've covered for introductions. But the turn towards authoritarianism and militarism in Japan during the 30s was caused by seeds planted in those early days we've covered. Knowing the pressures that they operated under is vital context to understand their part in the future conflicts. One of those solutions to internal pressures had been to establish a constitutional government, which I described in detail just a couple episodes ago. The framer of that constitution, Ito Hirobumi, had intended to reconcile the demands of the populists demanding representation while keeping real power with the oligarchs and the emperor. It was not supposed to establish true democracy, and the factualism of party politics was to be avoided, which, to be fair to him, was something a lot of founding fathers in other countries also attempted and failed to do. And while he succeeded as admirably as could be expected, the first few decades of the 1900s would see elected officials turn towards political parties as a means to achieve political power more than any other time until years after World War II. One of the big reasons this drift towards representative government happened was because the establishment oligarchs started dying off. Remember that the Meiji Restoration had been initiated back in 1868, a full 32 years before the turn of the century. It was carried out by influential men in the prime of their lives, but by the time the Constitution was announced in 1889, they were getting on in their years, and by the early 1900s, they were aging out. Sure, they had cliques that had built up around them, and people who hoped to succeed them in their positions of influence close to the emperor. But the problem was that these younger men didn't have the legitimacy of those who had stood with the emperor in 1868 and hadn't been in on the ground floor. Moreover, the emperor himself was getting on in his years as well, and his son, who would become known to history as the Emperor Taisho, suffered from numerous medical issues. Always a sickly child, the Emperor Taisho most likely developed a neurological disorder, although at the time he was written off as simply mad. Either way, the heir to the throne of the aged Emperor Meiji was never going to be a huge factor in the governance of the country. Well, aside from the fact that the absence of a capable monarch meant there was something of a vacuum to be filled, which coupled with the maturing political environment meant there was a brief window where democracy could actually take off. But if Ito had arranged the constitutions that much of the power in government would be kept out of the reach of the elected House of Representatives, how did they eventually break through those checks on their influence? Well, it was an uphill battle. The first step was in March 1898. At the time, Ito was serving as prime minister and was looking for ways to balance the nation's finances after the Sino-Japanese War and also the expected military buildup needed to confront Russia. One option he pushed for was increasing the land tax, basically the property tax. The thing was, the House of Representatives, while the directly elected body, was also composed of men who had some wealth to their name, what with suffrage at the time being based on wealth and land requirements. So, a land tax didn't go over too well with that crowd. The two biggest parties, the Liberal Party I discussed a couple episodes back, and the Shimpodo Party, which was an alliance of smaller groups, joined in opposition to the tax proposal. Ito responded by dissolving Parliament and forcing an election, which backfired badly as the alliance against him formed a combined group known as the Kinsaito. 
The new party took 244 out of 300 seats, which, to say the least, was overwhelming. Knowing he had lost the battle, Ito resigned and opened the way for the leader of the new coalition, Okuma Shigenobu, to be appointed prime minister. Remember that, at this point, winning the lower house of parliament didn't secure you the prime minister spot, but the election victory was so lopsided the emperor appointed him and gave the Kinsaito control of the cabinet anyway. This was actually a huge deal, because it was the first time that the government would be ran by a political party, and not by the machinations of the unofficial factions. But don't get too excited about democracy's sudden triumph, because one of the reasons I'm lingering over what would turn out to be a very brief episode in Japanese politics is because that cabinet wasn't totally controlled by the Kinsaito. Remember, the military had two spots reserved for them, one for the army and one for the navy. And both military ministers decided to be openly hostile to the new government, immediately working to undermine its attempts at governing. Uh, this wasn't helped either by the fact that this was the first time the group was in power. Uh, remember, the, for example, the experience of the Labour Party in the UK, uh, first coming to power back in episode 20. They basically crashed and burned. And this here uh, went even less well. In addition to the conflicts of the military and the governing experience, another problem was that the House of Representatives had little say in bureaucratic appointments. So the staffs of all those ministries still had their loyalties elsewhere. The Kinsaito appointed ministers, but the staffs were holdovers connected with the general. And then there was the division of the Kinsaito itself. It was an alliance of convenience, and each group immediately started jockeying against each other for influence and appointments for their own people. Within four months, the partnership broke apart and the oligarchs moved back into power. But there was some silver lining. Precedent had been set, and it wasn't like the lower house was going away anytime soon. The new government, created in the aftermath of the Kinsaito falling apart, was controlled by Yamagata Erotomo, the rival of Ito among the genro, and a committed military man. That military background did make him conservative, but he had a pragmatic streak due to serving in non-military government positions. Future army and navy leaders were going to have narrow worldviews as their service to the nation would be focused solely on their respective branch of the armed forces, and they would lack his ability to see things from the perspective of others. Yamagata reached out to the liberals as working partners, thus starting a trend where even the non-democratic factions in government would create alliances with the elected officials in order to actually get legislation passed. In return, the liberals and later other parties willing to work with the sitting government would get access to appointments and have a much deeper say in crafting policy, which would go a long way to preparing the political parties to govern effectively in the future. Ironically, the bedfellows made between the new government and the liberal party meant that by the end of 1898, taxes on land were increased after all. It's like one of those cyclical stories where it ends up where it began. Ito was still on the political sidelines after the Kinsaito fell apart, but he fully grasped the change in the political landscape. Knowing that political parties in the lower house were at this point unavoidable and going to be the norm, he opted to create his own organization and influence the House of Representatives from the inside. He created the Rikken Sayukai, or just the Sayukai, which is how I'll be referring to it, and the party was established to cooperate with the appointed government and streamline legislation through the lower house. Almost immediately, it attracted supporters in the parliament, as many saw Ito as a surefire pathway towards advancement. He was, after all, one of the top general of the country already, and had his own personal network of influence. 
It didn't immediately create the harmony that Ito sought, though, as the predominant faction in the House of Peers, that unelected upper house of parliament and the body most influential in government at that moment, was controlled by Yamagata's people, who really wanted Ito to just go away let them govern as they saw fit. And for the rest of the Meiji era, the factions created by the civilian thinker Ito and the general Yamagata waged a political cold war over the government. Sometimes they made power-sharing agreements, sometimes they just bickered relentlessly. Notable, though, was that these struggles were very much battles over consensus, and did not devolve into violence, instead usually being handled by men of influence meeting in each other's homes and the back rooms of their offices. Japan became famous in the 30s for assassinations and political intimidation, but that was not an issue quite yet. The Sayukai would secure elections by creating their own alliances with the Zaibatsu, whose very generous donations contributed to the party's coffers. They also reached out to local prefecture governors, which was handy because it was local authorities that ran elections. And you better believe that the Sayukai used some of that Saibatsu money to bribe election officials. Yamagata wasn't a slouch either on the influence front, and built his faction out of every sympathetic, non-elected official he could round up. His support was concentrated in the House of Peers, the government bureaucracy, and the military. Which, you may ask, why was the military so important within the government? Well, the vast majority of respectable officials wanted to be on the military's good side, and regardless of faction, you were pro-military. And the chiefs of the military had a lot to say in the procurement, which was a huge part of the government's budget. So, actually having the military establishment on your side was a big deal. Eventually, Yamagata would step away from day-to-day -day factional battles, which would be taken over by a man named Katsura Taro, another military man who Yamagata had made his number two. In 1913, Katsura formed his own political party, the Rikin Doshikai, or just the Doshikai, in order to take the fight to the Sayukai in the House of Representatives. The Sayukai would hold together against the challenge, and as we shall see, would become the most notable of the political parties during the 1910s and 20s, but Yamagata's prestige meant that their opponents always had a powerful patron to rally around. Which was kind of funny, because all of a sudden, the faction wanting to combat party politicians getting too much power started their own political party. I mean, Ito had wanted to contain representative politics as much as possible, and the conservatives didn't want it at all, and they wound up creating the two strongest and most stable political parties. It's actually kind of charming compared to Japanese politics later on, when the military starts taking an active hand, and it just becomes a bunch of assassinations. Anyway, Japan's trajectory continued on a course where you wouldn't have guessed that this maturing democracy would collapse in just a couple of decades. And almost concurrently with the solidification of party politics under the still fairly new constitution, the Emperor Meiji died. The date was July 30th, 1912, and for many it marked the overdue end of an era. The modern Japanese state had been secured decades prior, and the great victory over Russia had been back in 1905. Just as politics were changing, society was evolving as well. A telling example happened immediately after the emperor's passing. One General Nogi Marasuke, a national hero from the Russo-Japanese War, paid his respects to his dead master on the day of the state funeral, and then together with his wife, committed ritual suicide that evening. He had already requested permission to commit suicide from the emperor years prior, but had been refused. Uh, remember last episode when I spoke about the siege of Port Arthur and the tens of thousands who had died there? Nogi was in command during the slaughter, and the bloodshed had weighed on him. 
Now with the emperor gone, he went ahead and took the initiative on his own. His death was held up in the 1930s and 40s as worthy of emulation, an example of traditional honor and sacrifice. At the time it actually happened, though, there was confusion and no small amount of disgust at such an outmoded practice. The people were ready to live in a modern time when such things did not happen. I've already discussed that Meiji's successor, the Emperor Taisho, suffered from ailments that left him confined mostly to the Imperial Palace. Uh, normally, having someone with so much nominal power incapacitated would be a dangerous situation. But the system built the generation previous ran fairly smoothly without the sovereign that was supposed to be at the center of everything. And as for the common people, the early part of the 20th century was one of economic growth and incrementally improving conditions. Especially in the cities, there came to be new entries into the middle class. As manufacturing became more important, there was also an increase in professional positions in order to support or service them. As businesses got bigger, they needed not just labor, but also clerical and management workers. A modern banking industry established itself, and also needed to be staffed. The government bureaucracy expanded. As the population expanded, there needed to be more doctors and teachers to support it. All these positions demanded increased education, and many positions were being filled by women in the 1910s. Admittedly, they weren't really allowed to be in positions of authority, but the fact that many were earning their own incomes and working jobs that had education requirements was something new for the country, and reflective of the changing social mores of the Taisho era. It is worth noting, though, that while the modernization efforts were impressive, they were still a relatively small part of the larger economy. Much of the country still relied on agriculture as a source of employment, and small-scale local manufacturing continued to predominate while factory-based manufacturing uh, was concentrated on textiles or the heavy industries involving steelworks, such as shipbuilding. There were advancements even in the countryside, though, uh, such as railroad expansions, the spread of electricity, and a very large increase in land coming under cultivation. So while much of the nation's economy remained rooted in smaller enterprises, they were becoming more efficient and productive. Increased economic activity was helped in large part to World War I. In the years leading up to 1914, the Japanese government was actually in a fairly tricky spot financially. The military buildup, the multiple wars, and colonial fighting had drained the nation's coffers badly. Taxes were already high, which goes back to that whole land tax kerfuffle becoming a political breaking point. So that wasn't the answer. But then the Europeans decided to destroy themselves in a crazy spasm of violence, which turned out to be pretty great for Japan. I discussed last episode how they snatched up a few prizes at low cost while allied with the Entente, but the big wins were scored in the economic field. Japan wasn't called upon to fight in Europe, which meant that military expenditures didn't enter the crazy town levels the Europeans indulged in. And all that money the Europeans were throwing around was going directly to buying commodities like weapons, food, and consumer goods to compensate for their factories being switched over to war production. Japan leapt at these opportunities and made a killing. Plus, with the Europeans committing everything to the war, they weren't doing their usual trade. All of a sudden, the global market was wide open for Japanese expansion, which meant when the Europeans came back in peacetime, they found Japanese businesses having already displaced them. Between 1914 and 1918, Japan's real gross national product rose by 40%, an average annual rate of nearly 9%. Japan's industrial sector, which had been limited in size previously, received a gigantic shot in the arm. In future decades, Japan would briefly conquer an empire across the whole of the Pacific, something that was 
only possible due to this industrial takeoff. And while the end of World War I shut off much of the demand and caused a recession, which I'll be covering next week, the expansion didn't go away, and Japanese manufacturing only became more important as time went on. The increase in manufacturing also revealed the divide between the small manufacturers that predominated before the war and the bigger factories. While the smaller enterprises could only produce so much and expanded at a slow pace, the big firms scaled upwards rapidly. Indeed, the steelworks in Japan ramped up their production so far that there were crippling shortages for material elsewhere in the country. And while virtually every manufacturer benefited from the war, the truly massive profits went to the big players, which in turn widened the financial gap between those big guys and the little guys so that the big ones were able to reinvest their fantastic profits to further increase production, which served to generate bigger windfalls. Importantly, this concentration of wealth also meant that the business elites suddenly had a lot more power to throw around. The steel industry especially saw a culture change, as previously they had depended on state contracts and subsidies to get by. During the war, though, they raked in the cash, which allowed them to act in a more assertive and independent manner when dealing with the state. Not that they would ever get to the point of becoming hostile to it, just that they were now in a position where their opinions became much more influential within the government. The sudden boom also had its effect on the character of Japanese society in the countryside. The war had created new demands for foodstuffs, which caused the prices of the nation's staple food, rice, to increase in cost. This actually wasn't the boon one might expect for the nation's farmers, as while there had been expansions in arable land, most operations were still pretty small and operated by hired laborers or tenants. These guys, in turn, had to actually buy the rice they grew, and with prices increasing, their lot in life got worse. Tensions in the countryside flared up, and the underclass of have-nots there began coalescing into unions, which would become widespread during the 20s. It also caused over 100,000 to immigrate to the cities and take up industrial work. On the surface, trading one life of backbreaking second-class work for another might not seem terribly appealing, and the high prices and goods affected the countryside were the same in the cities, but the change to urban work at least provided some prospect of advancement, whereas in the countryside, if they remained, it was virtually guaranteed that they would remain second-class inhabitants forever. That being said, life in the cities for the working class was still hard scrabble at best in the early Taisho years. Wages were scarcely better than those earned via farm work, and employers were, as always, a capricious lot. Factory managers would routinely hire waves of untrained workers as orders came in, then lay them off when demand slackened, only to hire a fresh wave when demand picked up again. It wasn't a system that lent itself to stable employment, and the workers just had to deal with it. I mentioned that during the first era of industrialization during the Meiji years that industrial workers would routinely hunt out higher wages and better working conditions, and thus had experienced changing employers. This paired with cyclical layoffs meant that the average worker bounced around a lot of factories and took on a lot of jobs. While this did create a job market where many workers had an array of skills, it was also chaotic as all hell. And while workers weren't shy about banding together into unions or associations to press for better conditions, they importantly did not manage to organize politically. One of the biggest threads running through most of all the European episodes was the influence of socialism, and the parties that embraced the ideology. The rise of the far left on that continent was the defining political story of the early 20s, and the reaction to it caused many of the conditions for nations to drift towards fascism or authoritarianism. 
This didn't quite happen in Japan. And it wasn't because conditions were better there than in Europe. I've already given examples showing that the exploitation of capital was largely the same in both places. The Japanese, though, were late to the industrialization party, which meant that they had access to hindsight that the Europeans did not. Many of the establishment thinkers within the Japanese intelligentsia were well aware that if the miserable conditions of not just the factories, but every working sector, were to continue, then there was going to be outcry, and very possibly a socialist movement would start gaining momentum. From there, they could expect agitation among the lower class and constant criticism of the state, which would entail calls for unprecedented reforms. This was something the establishment desperately wished to avoid. Due to the spread of Western ideas, though, some version of that popping up became inevitable, and by the very last years of the 1890s, such groups started organizing. They weren't terribly large and were primarily intellectual in nature, uh, seeking first to critique capitalism in Japan and to workshop what socialism there would even look like. And socialists in Japan were distinct from their Western counterparts. Whereas in the West, the ideology was all about class struggle and revolution to redistribute resources equitably, in Japan, it was more cooperative in its outlook. They didn't see the bourgeois as a social class to be dissolved, but rather something to be universally achieved through socialism. In a perfect world for them, everyone would be bourgeois, and the term would be effectively meaningless. Due to the removal of the whole class struggle angle, Japanese socialism was in practice more of a moral code. The corruption of money and the obsession with materialism above community were the evils to be expunged and the upper and middle classes that had fallen under their sway nearly had to be cured of those ills. Even that mild ideology was anathema to the establishment, though. In 1900, legislation called the Public Peace Police Law was enacted with an eye at controlling leftist organizations. It was effective, too, and in the next year, the small Social Democratic Party was dissolved by the government using the law as cover. They would reemerge in 1906 as the Socialist Party, but the movement never really went anywhere until years later. Due to the police law, there were restrictions on how workers could organize and engage with political parties, which meant the party didn't have an organized proletariat to fall back on, and left the organization as mostly a club for intellectuals. There was some interest from students, but even that was restricted, as teachers couldn't join political parties at all, so even academia was hard to break into for the far left and the authorities were eager to break up this iteration of the Socialist Party as well. I remember a couple episodes ago the story of the Ashio Copper Mine. Well, in 1907, there had been a riot there that had left many of its facilities in ruins, and soldiers had to be sent in to put it down. The government pinned the riot on the Socialists, and when that party's leadership issued criticism at the way the riot had been handled, the government dissolved the party entirely. Under the direction of Yamagata, the government stepped up its efforts to root out the movement entirely, and harassment from officials and police became the norm for any public socialists. This culminated in 1911, when 12 socialists were accused of plotting to assassinate the emperor and were hanged. By the time the emperor Taisho took the throne in 1912, the movement was underground and on ice. Compared to the European experience, socialism in Japan was notable for just how little effect it had on society and its dissolution is a good example of how the state could marshal power against a perceived threat even during a supposedly democratic time period. Liberalism, on the other hand, was broadly accepted by the old guard, and during the 1910s, there would be the foundations of thought that would become the so-called Taisho democracy during the 1920s. 
The turmoil of war and industrialization over the past couple of decades had done a number on the social harmony that many leading thinkers and politicians thought was vital to the nation's prosperity. Socialism was by far too radical for them, but extending political rights was something they were prepared to entertain. The idea was that expanding representative government, something already happening anyway, would help establish a national consensus that everyone could agree on. The fact that the vast majority of the populace was fully in favor of a strong state with a powerful military and an array of colonial conquests meant that even those predisposed against democracy, like, say, Yamagata, were willing to go along with reforms. And as the 1910s came to a close, it looked like liberalism was the smart money. The government that Japan had originally based itself on, Imperial Germany, not only lost its war to the liberal members of the Entente, its entire state had collapsed. Expanded political engagement and rights for larger portions of the country would put the nation in better sync with the victorious West, and also open the door to a new sense of internationalism in the next decade. That post-World War I era is where I'll be picking up again next week. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.